The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. Welcome to another new section, Gargoyles fans. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me as usual is my co-host and partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hi, guys. And we also have joining us, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. Hey, we have a lot of news to discuss. A lot of things happen. So um, we're going to go through this as concisely as possible because it's a rather lengthy list. Toy Fair happened in New York City a few weeks ago, and they showed off new figures. Macbeth, finally. And it looks great. (laughs) He he does. Gabriel, too, who was a big surprise. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that one. And he also looks great. He does. And they said during an interview that if the fans keep coming out and supporting this, they're hoping to do accessory sets, which I hope means more wing options for the shelf. And they even mentioned the pack. They specifically name-dropped the pack as characters they would like to do. Cool. Very cool. But they also said, let's get Macbeth and Coldstone out first, which makes sense to me. So that was very cool. They also had a beautiful clock tower display, which is not going to be sold. That was custom made. But the fact that they had an entire display like that. (laughs) I would have walked in and said, how much do you want for the display? (laughs) Yeah, they're using it for commercials. They just dropped as a recording a a new commercial commercial by DM Galloway. Tonight on uh, on Twitter, so um, go out there and check it out. You've all probably seen it by now, but no, that thing was epic, and the fact they had a display like that tells me they're happy with how the line is doing, and they have hopes for where it's going. Fingers crossed. And also today, Limited Runs Games dropped the digital version of the Gargoyles remake for the Sega Genesis. It's out there on Switch, PlayStation, Xbox. The hard copies will be coming out sometime next year. And it's the same game as before. The, the graphics are just updated. I, yeah, I had a, a conversation with uh, one of my daughters, and she sent me the link to uh, an article about it, the article about it. And I'm like, I'm like, do you remember playing the, playing it when it came out before? <laughs> and she did not remember, but... Uh, but she definitely played it. <laughs> Damn those small children in their short-term memory. Oh, no, it was like goldfish, man. They're like goldfish. <laughs> nice. And so, uh, yeah. I, I guarantee she'll be playing it now, though. <laughs> excellent. And the big announcement that came out of New York Comic Con, well, shortly before New York Comic Con, Gardwell's Quest, written by Greg Wiseman. Greg. That's me. Yeah, but it it is. Greg, what is that? That's the the next big story for Gargoyles after here in Manhattan um, and Dark Ages end around the end of this year. We launch the 30th anniversary year with this uh, sort of epic uh, five-issue miniseries, Gargoyles Quest, which is uh, Demona, 
um, on a quest to find the three new keys to power. Um, and so that she can try another little dance with the human race and see if she can just find a different way to get rid of them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the definition of insanity. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, uh, she's a step ahead of the clan. They don't know what she's up to, uh, but they have to play catch up and it's, uh, uh, brings back some uh, classic characters from the original TV series, some new characters, uh, and uh, it's a big, it's a big adventure. So um, uh, I've written the first issue. I mean, I've, I've broken down all five issues, but I've written the script for the first issue, uh, and uh, any minute will be, uh, um, I'll be starting issue two um uh and so you know i'm pretty excited about it uh got a great artist and we're really psyched about um our plans for it and there's some bronx love in it for nate excellent (laughs) i think i've been waiting 27 years for for this story from the sounds of it i really cannot wait uh jen do you have any questions about it not right now (laughs) yeah like I'd answer any questions anyway. <laughs> How does it end? <laughs> I will say the biggest confusion I saw online since this thing started was we were saying, is this a Demona-focused spinoff we had never heard of? Or is this the next Gargoyle story where Demona is just a focal point as the villain? And I think it sounds like it's the latter. Uh, it's somewhere in between. Honest, if I'm being honest, um, it, Demona is kind of the protagonist of this story. But she's the antagonist of this. I mean, in other words, it it's more from her point of view, I'd say, than um, a typical, just you know, Demona's the villain of the episode kind of thing. Um, this is really she's driving the story, um, so we're getting it more from uh, her point of view. But it is the next gargoyle story. It's not like Demona's off on her own, and there's no Goliath or Brooklyn or anything. Uh, our cast is a big part of this. I do think, though, that um, I'm making an effort to sort of say, we usually see this from the hero's point of view. I want to do a story where we're looking at it from the villain's point of view instead. Nice. Uh, if you consider Demona a villain just because she wants to eliminate the human race. you know. <laughs> I mean, given the state a fine of the line. world, There's she a fine may not line. be wrong. <laughs> excellent <laughs> well you know what so, it, wor- it worked for tony soprano and walter white i'm really looking forward to this <laughs> yeah i think it i think it's going to be fun and i like the point of view shift and again still got goliath and it's still got a lisa in it you know um uh hudson everybody it, it's not like this is a one-off that's just about to moan off to the side it's just i'm i'm just sort of turning the camera in the other direction so to speak, um, to let her drive the story as opposed to the heroes driving the story. All right. Okay. It's time for uh, first impressions. We're going to st- start with Gargoyles issue 10. I know Halloween came out first, but I think we're going to start with issue 10. Uh, Jen, do you have any first impressions on Gargoyles issue 10? I. <laughs> How much do you want me to say on my impressions? <laughs> It was um, a big one. It was a big one. Like it was just uh it was it was pretty heavy and 
um, kind of proud of Elisa for outing herself as a monster fucker on live TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So perfect. I was, look at how secretive she was during the first 65 episodes. Not even other trouble sometime. And now, in front of the entire world, everything comes out. And that was just... That was, yeah. Um, was not expecting that to, to happen. So, um, I, it was, uh, it was, it's the right thing for everyone. That line, I was like, is it? <laughs> oh, that end scene. Yeah. I've, uh, I, what I loved about that was you took the best possible outcome Goliath could get. Maybe not the best possible outcome in the long run Elise is going to get. We'll find out. But um, the best possible outcome Goliath could get. And you just made it seem so sinister at the end. When we had that, when we had that Xanatos tag, the first Xanatos tag in ages. I mean, that was just. That was good. That was yeah. good. That I was don't not, know why you think it's sinister. I I I got tripped up on a couple of things. Like I wasn't expecting um, to see Titania. <laughs> I wasn't expecting uh, Xanatos there. Um, but um I kind of liked just the way it was started with um, getting just a little bit more history from Katana. That was kind of cool too. Um, yes, she. I love that kind of crap. <laughs> and the, and and little things like the guy that was holding uh, that takes Goliath's chains from him, like just about dying trying to carry them away. <laughs> I think that was Matt. <laughs> yeah, it's Matt. Was it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to that be. Was anyway, hilarious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, that was great, and I really look look forward to where this is going. And um, I'm worried about Elisa, but more on that in a moment. Um, do we have anything else we want to add about issue ten? We should definitely be worried for Elisa, um, especially when she goes to talk to her boss later. <laughs> that scene at the end where she's just waiting by the car, and Goliath has to take off because he immediately gets the news from Renard. I mean. Just, uh, I mean, I, yeah, obviously, Goliath had a good reason to take off, but that well, was just obviously he's not going to get in the car either. Yeah, so. that too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I look forward to our future deep dive in a couple of years about this thing. I, I, I do want to say, just to give props, and it's hard. I mean, I, I, I think it's easy to underestimate how hard it is to draw Elisa mostly as either silent or a talking head. But the way George drew her throughout this issue is so powerful. Um, He's so good I at just even if uh, even static images feel like they're in motion. Like he's very yeah. good at that. Uh, just, I mean, I you know I look at the page where um, she confesses her love, but even more so, I, I from a writing standpoint, I like that page better but from an artistic standpoint the page where um margo is questioning her the way he draws her uh on that page just there's uh, so, there's so much going on on like her face like yeah that's just uh incredible really George powerful has definitely stuff. been a gift yeah I, I completely agree. I just, uh, yeah, um, it, 
it's uh it's just really lovely stuff that panel where she's just got to watch goliath climb away and then fly away um there's nothing she can do at that point um it's just a beautiful panel there um i i can't tell you how impressed i am with with it uh, again because drawing a talking head drawing a silent person saying nothing um uh, it on one level okay that's easy to draw i don't have to draw action but on another level to get that much personality out of it um is just uh, i think phenomenal um and i just want to give george uh real props uh, i mean the whole issue but it specifically um his work on elise in this issue just really knocks me out definitely love the issue maybe my favorite so far but i said almost every time so we'll see it just keeps getting better and better i love this all right um first impressions on the halloween special jen um you mean this halloween special <laughs> <laughs> i have my hard copies too i don't have mine yet um i love 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 that blackbeard was a gargoyle <laughs> <laughs> me too um i love more and a nasty and one yes uh we got more bronx and food dog um so i love that careless jones has one costume <laughs> where's it every year one costume well, <laughs> I, love that he has I think after the news about goliath and the thought process for careless he wore that costume on as a repeat on purpose i don't think he normally would repeat i'm thinking about who he is as a person but i think he chose to do that on purpose because that was what he was wearing when he met goliath before and so he wanted to maximize uh the opportunity for goliath to remember him I, I so like that's that. uh that's that's my thinking on it is that I like the and I really had to think you know about I'm that. a gargoyle you know I'm a man <laughs> I love that I absolutely love that <laughs> like I was just like ah, ah yes love it oh oh we've come a long way since we that couldn't even barely be implied so <laughs> right. that, was, that was good love it um I'm head right now that between Halloween's John Castaway hired a PR firm who gave him some really strong advice about those hoods. But, um... <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. God, you gotta stop with the hood thing. You know, just, <laughs> you need to rework this out. I mean, it took, it took a little bit, but the new look did grow on me. Grow on me. They do have a minor kind of, you know, quarry mines, they do have that go- imagery going for them. They, um, and like you said, they are effective. The, the designs are actually cool. And, um, there was a moment where I was worried that Castaway was inching back into Goliath Chronicles territory, but I also figure as long as he's not firing anti aircraft cannons in the middle of the city, hijacking trains, and most importantly of all, admitting that the gargoyles are heroic and protect people, we should be fine. Plus, the more I looked at it, the idea was to make some noise and drive up recruitment. And yeah, he got arrested. Um, I can think of other recent rioters who got arrested. And while it 
chilled people. They also gained a lot more support in the long run. So uh, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> yeah. And I love Nash. Nash is great. I'm glad we're finally really getting into I him. love that Nash has friends now. <laughs> that I were the kids and Nash were so cute. Like <laughs> I just loved every interaction that they had. <laughs> they were real I loved the their little costumes. Um it was mm. it was very cute. Wannabe quarrymen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those two teenagers who you know, those bullies, those are not, you know, actual quarrymen. They're two guys who I thought that was clear from the comic, but some of the comments I've saw saw was like, well, now the quarrymen are beating up little kids. I'm like, those aren't quarrymen. Those are a couple of high school bullies, Thugs. you know, uh, who, yeah. who want to be quarrymen. Um, that was the impression I got today when I wrote on Gargwiki, the wannabe quarrymen entry. Before we started recording this, so yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Those guys' names are way, Moby I... and Dick. Oh my! Uh, God. Uh, repeat that. Those two bullies are Moby and Dick. Moby and Dick. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh huh. But no, no, it it was fun. I always love Halloween adventures. At least it was Alice this time. Nice. Although it looked more like uh, yeah. less the Disney design and more the uh, classic design you would see on the book covers. But still cool, cool to see. And um, we had Susie and Billy and Terry and Food Dog and Bronx. <laughs> it was just a fun one. <laughs> Terry Chung likes people who have wings. Hmm, I wonder if that's going to go anywhere for him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, it, it, it was. I like great. when Billy was like, "I knew you were a gargoyle the whole time." The whole time, the whole like, time. You did not. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. I liked in line that their mom almost joined the quarrymen. She yeah. turns out she didn't actually join the quarrymen. Looks like she just attended that one meeting. I mean, well, we'll dive more into the two versions of that. Now that we know this, when we get to our deep dive of the journey, well, the, otherwise, the thing, there there was a reason for that. Everyone seemed to assume that she joined, was, and I'm like, yeah. look at the page from the SLG book, and she, everyone's like going for hoods and hammers, and she doesn't. Um, and so I was like, no one seemed to notice that she didn't like what she was seeing there, that she got lured in. But then when the result was get a hood, get a hammer, she was, she didn't go get one. Um, so I felt like, oh, uh, I better spell this out at some point. And this was the first opportunity I had to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll go into this way more in depth much later, but if you look at the animated version of the episode, she's eagerly reaching for a hood at one point. So we'll talk about that when we get to well, our coverage. I can't speak for the animated version of the episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's why people assumed. And uh, Dark Ages issue four. Uh, Jen, do you have any thoughts on that one? I, I like how uh, we're literally building things up right now. Um <laughs> I love that uh, we're seeing that not all gargoyles are nice and, and uh, they may just be a little bit too human. And it was very, I liked, I liked the uh, Demona and Desdemona's little comparison panels kind of thing. Like, this is what Demona's doing, this is what Desdemona's doing, and it's, you know. Sacrifice is a much better mentor than the Archmage. Surprise, surprise. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but I liked seeing that side by side. And and it's kind of like 
just one decision changes your whole existence. Um, so like that's they both made choices, and now you get from that point things go you know differently for both of them, and um, I just thought that was that was cool to have them like I, that and seeing Sher- Sherry. The light bringers. Um, I think we know who the others are also. I think we've seen <laughs> them before. Also, the Val movement, as you called it a couple episodes ago, continues. Okay, issue nine of SLG, we had Duval, the Time Dance arc. We had Valmont. Then we had Lord Vala. I'm saying it correctly this time. And now we have Brother Valdez, and they're all bald. They're all, I mean, the Val movement continues. Now I'm confused. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> But I will say this, this is a, a thought that's been building up across the four issues. Is Hippolyta in love with Angel? At first, I wasn't quite sure. But now I'm wondering, as this thing keeps building, I mean, okay, so she was mocking Goliath to her in issue two. And then in issue three, she looked devastated that she wasn't able to join in a rescue mission, but Goliath was. And now Iago's glaring at Othello and Desdemona, and she's glaring I at know. Angel and Goliath. So- is this what's going on? <laughs> Seems convenient, huh? <laughs> oh, that was that was good. Again, I I like the different look of it. Um, it doesn't have the movement and stuff, but I feel like the more that uh, George's uh, art does, but I feel like the more rigid um, look to them all and. Um, lends itself to the dark ages, you know, like it just really, I, I like his stuff too. Um, and I'm really enjoying the, the story as well. For me, uh, the thing that was interesting is that I sort of wrote this back to back with the Halloween issue. So it's like on the one issue, I've got Nash, Terry, Billy, Susie. And then in this, I've got Alison, Antiope, Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne. And, I love um, the names, the, the like how she was like, okay, you're going to be. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Halloween issue. The costumes uh, that Broadway, Lexington, and Angela were wearing are Virgil's Alexander, Charlemagne was Angela, and Antiope, the Amazon. Is that what, was, what you did there, Greg? Mm-hmm. That's it what I clicked. did there. It just clicked. <laughs> uh, I see what you did there. Nice. It's just, I, I, the truth is, um, in the context of Gargles, we haven't written across, you know, much with little, with younger kids in it, you know, teens, yeah, um, and older. But uh, so it's just been really refreshing for me to do these two point of views Nash meeting new friends and Alison meeting new friends. Um, and then the flip of it. So Nash is a gargoyle who we know a little bit meeting these human friends. And Alison's a human who we know a little bit meeting these gargoyle friends. And it and it was interesting. It's not like I planned it that way, but I just ended up writing those two issues back to back. And so it was sort of fun for me to sort of do it. I I I think for me, I love that scene where she's just uh sitting with the eggs. You know, um, yeah, <laughs> and they're like talking like the and you're not going to be scared, like scare me and like <laughs> having a little talk with them now. 
So it was uh, cute. That was very cute. It's a quieter issue, obviously, from, you know, we had three issues in essence of battle and war and, um, you know, with a funeral at the end and all this stuff. But uh, I thought it was a kind of a breather before things hit the fan again in issue five. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like I'm reading it and they're like, OK, we're building the castle. And I'm like, it takes so long to build a castle. And like, this is what I'm thinking in my head. And as soon as I said it, they are like, and we have the gargoyles working on it at night. (laughs) It's like, well, that cuts down on the time it takes to build the castle. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking. Oh, this is great. I've I've just been loving it. And Alisand, I got to say, is adorable. And I love that last page where she was just dreaming of of flying with the gargoyles. Because how many gargoyles fans, kids who watch the show back in the day have had have ever had that dream i'm sure we all had at some point that was that was cute that was it was cute. i fear for allison though in the long run i i fear for her yeah yeah uh, all right i is there anything else you want to say about any of these issues no they're they're good they're um i i i love that i'm like just the uh, just having new content just makes me so happy. Me too. <laughs> and that me it's too. not stuck co- content. I'm super happy. <laughs> uh huh. And I cannot wait to do our deep dive into all of this in a years, couple of years when we get to all this. This is just going to be terrific to come back and discuss like we've been discussing the episode. So, um, yeah. In the meantime, thank you for listening to our news section and to our listeners. Join us for Avalon Part Three. And hey, don't forget, start making plans now. You're going to want to be Minneapolis, 4th of July, 2024, for uh, Convergence and the Gargoyles 30th anniversary celebration with myself, with these two here, with Tom Adcox, Hernandez, Voice of Lexington, and others to be announced. Uh, So, you know, save your money, make your plans. Uh, because it's gonna be a party. Woohoo! Uh, wait. Thank you, Greg. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, the other Greg, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime, co-host Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. We're going to introduce that voice momentarily, but we are pleased to also reintroduce, as always, the supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the writer of the comic book, and the co-creator of the series, who for our Patreon listeners and for our audio listeners, the reason why I meant that sounds so good, his internet is out, so he's calling in by phone, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we are very happy to have with us a writer and producer in her in her own right, a creator of of at least one TV series that I know of. Maybe there have <laughs> been others, but we'll ask about that in her career. The voice of Angela herself. Joining us for when Angela officially joins the main cast. Yes. Miss Brigitte Baco. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're super excited to have you here. It's my pleasure. Great pleasure. 
Rishi, we really thank you for coming on board the show with us. And before we really dive into the episode, we like to get to know our guests. Um, tell us a little about your, about yourself, where you came from, how you got into show business. Mm, that's an interesting one. Well, I'm from Montreal, Canada. I got on the Greyhound bus when I was 19 and moved to New York, fully expecting fame, fortune, and to marry Michael Jackson and keep him black and Jerry girl. It didn't happen, but um, I very quickly, I was very lucky. I went to school and uh, I started a tiny little fire in my dorm. It happens. And I got let go from school. And then I got my first job with this this little director, what's his name? Martin Scorsese. So the power of this guy was only in this movie for maybe 10 minutes. It was called New York Stories. It was the first film I ever did. I'd only been in New York a year. And the power of Martin Scorsese is probably every other film or television role I ever got afterwards was because I had been in a room with the great Martin Scorsese. So he really, he gave me, he launched my career got me a green card into this country. Sometimes I want to give it back. but, I, <laughs> but I, and, and so that's how it all started. And then I just was very lucky. I, I worked a lot in a lot of film and some television. And then one year I was on an HBO show in about 2001. And it was a comedy called Mind of the Married Man. And I was the only one that had nothing funny to do on this show. I just had really good hair. And nothing. And I cried all the time in the comedy. And I thought, I, I, I think I can do this. I mean, I wrote good term papers. And so I sat down and wrote a comedy for myself. And I I mean, I can't spell. I don't know how I have this career. Uh, and that show got picked up very quickly and ran for many years. And and since then, that's what I do. I, I, I create television shows and I punch up comedy for other people's television shows. And I travel with my dog. And that's what I do. <laughs> and that's what I do. And I do a gargoyle convention every once in a while, and I love it. <laughs> we'll plug it later, but we're having one next year. Where will it be? It'll be in the Windy City. <laughs> oh, my no. best friend lives there. No, no, no. No? That's not no. right. You're right, you're right. I'm, I'm Minneapolis. The Minneapolis, the Twin City. Is the Twin oh, cities. I've never been there. It's... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, and and Bashansky just reveals how bad at geography you can sometimes get. So we're confused. <laughs> yeah, why, why did I say Those it wrong? Nicknames what? are tricky. Uh, <laughs> Minneapolis, yeah, we'll be in Minneapolis, Minneapolis next year. Minneapolis, thank you. <laughs> so we would like we would like people to show up at the right convention. Fans on the Fourth of July in Chicago, going, where is it? I can't find it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Greg likes to bust me. I like to bust him, as you saw in our text conversation for all this. <laughs> how many have there been? How many gargoyles? Can, I know I've made a couple, but how many have there been? Like, have I missed 18 of them or something? Uh, Are they no, here? no. Uh, Jennifer, Jennifer used to run them. Okay. I never got to actually sit down and talk to you because I never got to talk to anyone at the convention. <laughs> you were too busy running the thing. Takes a woman, right? Well, next time, next time we will sit next down. Next time, for sure. And uh, I look forward to so that. When, there were was... about fourteen. There were about fourteen conventions from uh, nineteen ninety-seven to what two thousand nine, four. No. Nine was it? Nine? 
Yeah, it was nine. It was 2009. It was 13. And then 2009. Had, and then we had a get together for the 20th anniversary, also in Minneapolis. And we're doing it again for the 30th anniversary in Minneapolis. Um, what? Right. And this, con- this convention not- in Minneapolis, it's convention in Minneapolis is not a Gargoyles convention per se. It's Convergence, which is its own convention. Um, but we, Convergence has uh, been wonderful and is hosting our 30th anniversary celebration over the 4th of July weekend, 2024. Mm-hmm. And we are pulling all the old fans in. <laughs> yes. Right. But no, but no, that's quite a remarkable career going from, I mean, they can attest, Martin Scorsese is one of my favorites. So I kind of sat here like this going, I yeah. about this. so that was uh, really cool. Really liked hearing that. And it was very cool. I will say, though, that um, Martin Scorsese was not the reason she got the part of Angela. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) No? Okay. Um, Well, that's good. She read for it. She Mm -hmm. read for it. She earned that part, you know? Uh, You know, because we would listen to the voices cold, not knowing who was, uh, you know, we would judge just from the the audition tapes, not... uh, based on um, resumes or CVs or anything like that. And so uh, you won that part by being the best. It is one of of all the things I have done, one of my most cherished jobs. And I, I wish it was, you know, I, every year someone says, oh, they're relaunching it or they're going to do a movie version or they're going to do something. And I'm like, Oh my God, I I would love to get the band back together because it was, magical i know not everyone is still with us but it was just such a it was my first cartoon i'd never even known that i had a voice that anybody thought would be good for cartoon and then to be this this figure this amazing strong woman so ahead of her time in the in the 90s when we weren't seeing a lot of that it was just incredible i loved it and and what i loved about angela's voice she's would sound so innocent and like sweet, but then could turn it around and just be a badass. And I just, <laughs> I loved, I just love Angela. Yeah, she, she was young, but she, when you, when you, she, she had some of her mama in her, right? <laughs> when, when needed to be, she was, she was uh, tough as nails and, and yet, uh, and yet a daddy's girl and her own woman, and and she was just so well-written, and believe me, I have been bludgeoned and murdered and everything in so many movies where you you die to to get a part like this in a live action, especially when you're young, and so this was just like really one of my most favorite, favorite parts, and the fact that it's like iconic and that, you know, people still reach out to me about it, and that I'm blue and amazing. And now an action figure, kids. I mean, it's just a a pinnacle. It's a pinnacle. And I was just thinking about this today because I was, I rewatched the episode and I've been watching the show almost constantly for 30 years. And just, um, we talked about Angela and the voice brought to her and, you know, some of the other characters when they first show up long before Angela does, I mean, they kind of start out as a little bit more cliche before developing into these, three-dimensional characters in their own right. Angela doesn't. There's a certain subtleness to her because of her naivete and innocence, but that steel, and I was just thinking of how hard it is to play something like that and then make it interesting. And to hear that was your first voiceover. 
first voiceover. Uh, yeah, I had never been on a voiceover audition. But, you know, I it was so Shakespearean to me, the writing. And I came up classically trained in Canada and I did a lot of Shakespeare festivals. And that was like so much a part of like my young, young life in the theater that it, she felt um, very much grounded in something not only otherworldly, but old world. She's old soul. And I think I'm an old soul. So we connected, we connected on that. And you know, I rewatched the episode too, because as I said, I've done no drugs, but have no memory of most things. <laughs> I don't remember these episodes. And I was thinking, you know, the the journey that she takes, like she's she's going off to see the new world, right? I was a young, young girl in Montreal. My parents let me get on that bus and move to New York. We had very similar trajectories. And I mean, I, I didn't beat up that many people in New York, but I could if I had to. <laughs> <laughs> and now, in menopause, which reminds me, Jamie yes. Thompson had a nickname for, Aunt, for uh, Bridget. What was it? Remember? Nope. The executioner. <laughs> Oh, because, because guys, my last name, Baco, everybody assumes it's Italian, but my last name is Hungarian and my last name means the executioner. So this, this, this is deep, deep, deep in my DNA and my blood. This was a very, very respected profession. You wanted your executioner to give you a clean cut, right? So you make nice, nice with your executioner. <laughs> well, maybe that just went into Angela because she was very fair the way she fought. <laughs> nice, fierce. <laughs> but I, I like that you called her an old soul, though. That's yeah, a, a good way of looking. Referred at. to her as the executioner throughout our throughout <laughs> our recording session. Well, I take they take that as a great honor. Oh. That's good. No, that's badass. I wish I had a last name that interesting. Mine is just a little bit incomprehensible. So <laughs> that has its power too. <laughs> so I do need to ask because I know. I mean, nowadays we talked with Greg about this in the past, but um, it, back nowadays adding new characters to a pre-existing cast happens all the time. Back then, it was a lot rarer. You would have your cast right off of the bat and unless something traumatic happened behind the scenes, that cast would say the cast. So what is it like coming into something like this midway through the second season, everything is established, and then you're this brand new element that is introduced? It's interesting that you say that, because I have a superpower, and that is I do not research anything. <laughs> I'm completely naive when I walk into a situation. So I hadn't seen it. Wasn't into watching cartoons at the age of 30 or however old I was, 28, when, when, whenever it was. Can't do math either. But anyway, and so I purposefully, I knew that there were big stars in this and people that I looked up to. I, I worshipped Ed Asner. I mean, there were so many people. But I really kind of didn't want to know too much. And I walked in and I was a little nervous. But um, director was so wonderful. Greg was so wonderful. I just, I just went for it. I just went for it and I didn't put the pressure of of the of the monumental series on me. I just I just dealt with it at hand. And I think I just had bigger balls when I was young. I just nothing scared me. I don't know if I do the same now, but I was like, I'm here. Here we go. I'm gonna grunt and have a good time. And that really added to the performance, <laughs> I think, with especially with this episode where she goes out into the world as we discussed. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think also, you know, uh, after this episode, I mean, all the episodes that follow the one we're talking about today, she's new to everything. So the fact that Bridget was new to Goliath, new to Elisa, new to Bronx, and then when we got to back to Manhattan, new to the trio and Hudson, that was okay, you know, because it was in character for her to be exploring these new relationships and for her to be learning about the situations as we went. So it, it didn't require her to, to know a lot of, Hey, what happened back in season one, episode seven, you know, um, anything that she needs to know would get discussed in that episode. So she'd find out about that, you know, and, um, it, it wasn't essential in fact, almost the reverse, it, it was kind of great to have her be almost like a, a point of view character for new viewers. You know, I don't know what's going on. Explain it to me, you know, kind of thing. And we made use of that periodically, you know, where sure. um, there was information that most of our cast, I don't, I don't mean the actors, but most of our characters already knew, but Angela didn't. So that was a way in. If you hadn't seen season one, or if you, if you'd missed some episodes, Angela actually uh, helped us. It was a refresher. But it also, right. It also allowed us to explore. I mean, look, Angela's parents on the show were Keith David and Marina Sirtis, which is (laughs) so fun. (laughs) And, you know, we got... I hate it when mom and dad fight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Greg is so right. I got to discover the show real time while I was on it because I, I wasn't told to go back and learn everything and, and see everything. They liked that I was coming in with this reference point and the discovery of everything. I don't remember which episode it is, but there was such a heartbreaking one between her and her mother you know, when they have a confrontation and, and it's just the like, I got, thank you. I got to experience it right there in the moment. And um, they were incredible. I mean, what an incredible group of people that they, you know, brought together to do this. I mean, whenever I bump into Keith all the time in New York and I see him and I just, I love this man so much. I mean, he truly was this sort of, father figure there he really ran the show and you know guys this was the 90s people would come on and actors would hit on other actors and do their actory and he wouldn't he had his protective wings band around me for sure and and everyone he set the tone and it was just such a wonderful safe amazing environment and just to watch people be brilliant and and without the use of their bodies were just sitting there at microphones. It was fascinating. I love it. I got hooked. What you just said, I've got to say something. There's a saying out there, never meet your heroes. Everyone I have ever met that is involved with this show has been a fantastic human being. Jennifer, <laughs> your thoughts on that one? We've met even more of them than I have. You've even uh, worked with them. I There's no one I don't like. I mean, they're free. Every one of them. Well, those Weissman. Well, like Weissman. God, that Weissman guy, man. He just. Yeah. He's a little. He's, a little he's, he's like uh, my best friend. He's so. a little. A little much. He's, he's a little much. He's, he's a little over the top sometimes. <laughs> okay. All of the time. 
I I don't know. I feel like everybody <laughs> knew that this was a really special job, that this doesn't happen very often. First of all, the the writing and the stories were so elevated, like just rewatching episodes. And I'm like, how does a seven-year-old grasp this or attend? This was really meant for adults in many ways. This is why I think it resonates still with so many people. But it it just was so brilliant. There was nothing like it. I still think there's nothing like it. So everybody got it. It holds up really well, too. Like, I... (laughs) Other shows that you can watch at that time, you know, era, are cringy sometimes, but it really, really does hold up. And I see I was in my, I was always an animation nerd. So I was in my mid 20s when this came out and I had twins that were five years old. Oh my God. And we had an amazing time watching it together. You did it together. That's incredible. Like it kept my attention. It kept their attention. Uh, The show was pretty magic. Magic. It, it really is. And you talked about with, we talked about this a little bit, but you talked about with Angela doing the, cl- doing the classics through Angela in a lot of ways, even modern classics, because my brain just went here while you were talking. And I'm thinking of the character arcs of some more contemporary heroes, like, um, say, Wonder Woman, a peaceful warrior from, an I- from a paradise island hidden from the world, goes out into the world as this peaceful warrior. You know what? Luke Skywalker, he's kept away from everything from the wider galaxy goes out, finds a family, and um, granted, she had a family where she came from, and uh, and uh, his father turns out to be Darth Vader. Your mother turns out to be a genocidal maniac. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. You're absolutely right. There's even more contemporary figures that, that she follows in that path. I love it. I mean, it's the hero's journey. It's it not, is. You know, it's, it goes back a long ways. I think what was sort of unique maybe not unique because you mentioned Wonder Woman who was uh, from the early 40s but um, but still for the a 1990s cartoon show I think what was sort of unique about Angela is that usually that role was for a guy and so you know making Angela female bringing her in I think also there was a lot of anticipation that Angela and Elisa would clash. We had two women on the show, so obviously they had to argue all the time. And we didn't do that. We played them into a relationship that um, was pretty loving and eventually, you know, uh, objectively acknowledged as sisterly. Um, And I think that was unique. I think that in those days, if you had two female characters you know, I mean, it, it's almost a cliche. It's I'm sorry. No, they didn't have two ma- female characters on any shows in the 90s. <laughs> any animated series. Okay. No, it didn't happen. No. And if I may say, Greg, because you, you call it a hero's journey, but you wrote a she-ro's journey. There, there's so many she-ro's yeah. on that show. Uh, all, all the women characters were, were just so strong. I mean, even... Even having a badass like Demona be a woman, you know, and not a man, it it just was was incredible. I understand, I understand her now that I'm in menopause. I understand her much better. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> lady, I'm just probably going through it. You you mentioned that, and there's a line coming up later, which you know I'll point out now, which I really appreciated every time when. 
<laughs> Elisa kind of makes Goliath acknowledge that he's never actually defeated Demona. He's this big, yes. powerful warrior, and in a lot of ways, she's more powerful than he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just rewatched that line and went, it's really true, you know? It's really true. She was, I mean, she's certainly more relentless. Yes. Women don't give up, Greg, ever. <laughs> and, we're, and we'll take it and take it and take it. Do you piss us off? Just one time too many, and then we're you're done. Done Ex- forever. We're done. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're done. It's yeah. just, you know, we'll take it so far and then uh executioner time. To our listeners, to anyone who um <laughs> you know what you're not gonna be surprised at this all, but at all, but uh the two women on this show right now are way tougher than the two guys on this show. Ah. Way tougher. Oh, yeah. That's for damn that's for damn sure. Well, especially this one woman, because I'm only a mother of dogs. She actually has human children, which is probably <laughs> the toughest thing ever. So, yeah. Yeah, four of them. Oh, my God. A whole God. pack of them. A pack. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. my own clan. <laughs> yeah. We should probably begin diving into the episode. <laughs> and, um, again, a lot of really great stuff here. I mean, it's mostly, a lot of it is action, but there's a lot of real character drama in this and i like how the way this three-part is structured we caught up with the heroes in part one we caught up with the villains in part two and this is greg i believe you've said this before this episode is for all intents and purposes a war oh yeah i mean we really viewed it that way um that this was you know a war for the planet earth i mean it i it's a microcosm because they're fighting for avalon but the Archmage's plan is to use Avalon as a base for conquest of the entire planet. So uh, it's absolutely staged as a war just with a um, finite number of participants, you know. Um, and it logistically, I mean, we had uh, Dennis on last time to talk about Avalon Part 2. Um, who uh, Dennis directed it, uh, and he directed this one as well. And you know, logistically, um, in terms of the writing that Britain's story edited and Lydia Morano wrote the script, um, and the directing of this, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, a lot of moving parts to this, and we had to track all of them. And so, one of the things we did in the first two episodes is most of the clan gets injured in the first battle that precedes this episode. Um, so that we didn't have to choreograph all of them too. You know? <laughs> um, very clever, very out. clever. But we do see Ophelia, you know, sort of get up off her sick bed, a couple of gargoyles get up off their sick beds, you know, and try to intervene and help. Um, you know, where, where, in this room in the palace where they've been uh, triaged and everything. But, you know, even without all those gargoyles, you still have, you know, uh, six villains um, fighting against, I can't, I don't even know. I mean, I, I mean, very overpowering, but, you know, we've got the Magus, we've got Catherine, we've got Tom the Guardian, We've got Angela and Gabriel. We've got uh, um, Budika and Bronx. Um, we've got Goliath and Elisa. 
Um, and just in case that wasn't enough, we threw <laughs> King, in King Arthur. King Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, but it's not just action. There's a lot of human drama. And Jennifer, what did you think of that scene with Elisa and the Magus at the beginning? When they're going to the Hollow Hill? Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I I literally cry. Every time I watch this, I cry for the Magus. Every time I watch this episode. Um, like, yeah, the guy has just tortured himself to the point that he's just given up on, you know, nobody... I don't have, I'm not used to walking with people even because he's isolated himself and he won't leave because he feels like there's a duty and he owes the gargoyles, but he's, uh, he's not happy. He's doing penance in a way. Yeah. Yeah. He's punishing himself. And that fl- uh, the Magus became a really fascinating character for us, for me and um, Michael Reeves and, and Bryn Chandler Reeves and Lydia Morano, sure for others too, but we were the ones who really were focused on him. And again, this is a character who begins as not a villain, though villainous enough that we tried in our pilot to trick you into thinking he was the bad guy, right? Um, when it was really the captain betraying the castle, um, but clearly an antagonist. Um, and certainly hostile to the gargoyles. And so the idea, the challenge of, can we turn this guy not just into someone who's, okay, he's learned his lesson, but actually into someone that you're crying for? Um, Can we rehabilitate him that much from what he was, the guy who cursed the gargoyles, the guy who, you know, um, participated in all the hatred toward them. Um, can we change people's point of view on this guy? And it's something we discussed, the four of us. Uh, maybe Frank, too. I can't remember. But um, definitely uh, Michael and Bryn and Lydia and I. Um, it's something we discussed. Can we turn this guy around for the audience? And... Um, and those kind of challenges are things that, you know, writers live for, um, uh, can, can it be done, you know? Um, and, you know, I think of, for example, Spike on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or, uh, I'm sure there are other examples too, but where you take someone who you thought of thinking one way and without betraying the character, I mean, you're not, you don't want to retcon the character into oh no we're going to ignore that stuff that that character did we didn't we didn't want to ignore it we wanted to incorporate it into the story yeah yeah into his redemption and i think what brit and lydia did with him in this script is is you know kind of gorgeous on the flip side of that uh you know when the star wars prequels came out (laughs) Oh boy. Padma wound up with Anakin. I remember being, and partially it said it was live action, right? So you're actually seeing it. And I remember being so creeped out by the notion that they would 
fall in love when she met him when he was like six or whatever. <laughs> and then I would bitch about that. And then someone, I'm guessing Jennifer, but I can't say for sure. Someone go, well, you did that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, Tom and Catherine. And I'm like, oh my God, I did that. Ugh. Um, <laughs> and you did it before Game of Thrones. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Greg, to be We're, fair, I've seen people print that out online. None of those people, and they say she should have gotten, Catherine should have gotten together with the Magus in that case. And I'm thinking, the Magus has the exact same age difference with Catherine that yeah, she and that does was with. I mean, that was intentional. We put, there were 20 years separating the Maguses, exactly 20 years separating the Magus from Tom. And Catherine was dead in the middle of that, dead center in the middle of that, so that she was 10 years younger than the Magus and 10 years older than Tom. And so you're right on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's still, uh, <laughs> it's something that now, and I don't think at the time it did, um, but now when I watch it, I get a little ooze feeling, <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> okay, I guess that's, that's something I've done now, um, in my career. Uh, eh, life is uh, problematic. Why shouldn't fiction be? <laughs> well, and I do think that honestly, and this is a cheat, but it helps that it's animation, you know, in other words, um, it's one thing in a cartoon and I don't mean because it's, cartoony i just mean you know that it's not actual people you see natalie portman you know with this little boy and then later with this guy who's supposed to be that little boy and you're just like ooh, i I don't like that you know and here you see tom as an adult and there's i think i just think you've got that one step removed from you know reality that lets you accept things. Anyway, that's the story I'm sticking to. Um, we can sort of buy into it a little easier because uh, it's a animated. Just so you know, uh, that's where I just looked this up. That's where I'm planting my flag. There's only five years difference between Padman and uh, Anakin. <laughs> <laughs> you see, but I don't believe that. I mean, I don't believe there's five years difference between Natalie Portman and that kid who played Anakin. I, I think I movie. think what what we're not perceiving, and I think this was a problem, was that Anakin was older than we thought, and she's supposed to be younger than we think, and it didn't doesn't play that way. It definitely doesn't play that way. No. Anyway, that's a tangent, but I feel like since we're talking about this. I had to cop to my creeped out. Oh, I was going to bring anyway, it up if you did. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, a different subject. We'll swing back to Bridget in a moment. But um, this is something we probably should have brought up last time. But um, we were very packed and for time last time. But um, and someone actually asked us about this. But okay, so we go through all of City of Stone, the weird sisters and the machinations, the result of what they're planning. In a lot of ways, it was for a very petty reason. You know, the Weird Sisters are complex. Uh, I I definitely see that it was petty, but vengeance is petty. And one of the three Weird Sisters, uh, Luna, is the Celine. goddess of vengeance. In that Celine. <laughs> Luna's oh, sorry, fate. Celine. Yeah, you're right. Celine. You're right. You're right. Luna's fate. Celine and, 
and they're a triple goddess. So at different times, different uh, ones of these three are ascendant. So what's clear is that in this trio of episodes, Selene is ascendant. Um, but that doesn't mean that's all there is to it. In other words, there's a lot of what's going on in this, particularly in City of Stone, that's more about Luna, who is um, the goddess of fate, and, um, and maybe even Phoebe, who's the goddess of grace. Um, because what we were trying to do, maybe clumsily, but I think it worked pretty well, is the idea of the triple goddess fascinated us, certainly fascinated me. And when you look across multiple cultures, the triple goddesses um, tended to, um, A, be associated with the phases of the moon, I suppose, but which is why they've all got moon related names but um but also you know if you look at greek mythology you've got the three graces you've got the uh three fates um you've got the uh Arignes and and uh you know and this idea of vengeance fate and grace and we're like and i'm looking you know I, at the time i was I mean, I still am, but I was very into mythology. And so I was looking it up and, you know, Norse had the three um, fates, the, the Norns, you know. Uh, and so across multiple cultures, this idea of the triple goddess exists. So, but I thought, well, what if it's not only triple goddesses representing one concept? What if it's triple goddesses representing three concepts? Um, I know this sounds esoteric, but it's not in my head. It's hard to verbalize, but I guess the idea is that, okay, and what that means is that at different times, different ones are ascendant. And there's always a mix of all three, grace, fate, and vengeance, is all mixed up together. So one might be ascendant, but the other two don't completely recede. So certainly in this of episodes, and especially in this episode, vengeance is ascended. And one of the, you know, ongoing themes of our show, as Xanatos puts it, is that revenge is a sucker's game, right? Um, it's petty and kind of pointless. Um, and never solves anything, never fixes anything. Right. Um, it's just a further cycle of vengeance. But there are elements to the Weird Sisters game here, which I still have in my head and in notes and various composition books from the last 30 years. Um, we haven't even yet, even with the comics, seen how um, grace and fate play into even the events of this of this trio of episodes. Um, and I'm not gonna give you any spoilers here other than to say there's more to it than what you've even yet seen. Just as when you saw what happened with the three of them in City of Stone, there was more to it than what you knew there. Um, and now people may think, well, now we know what it was and it was petty. And there's an element of pettiness that was intentional in there but it isn't the be-all, end-all of 
their story and their involvement. Nice. So keep buying that comic and, uh, <laughs> right. and hopefully we'll see it. That's, that's, ultimately that's the theme of the whole show. Keep that's, buying that comic. Go buy the comic. <laughs> yes. This is a very, very long commercial. <laughs> it really is. Right. Okay. Swinging back to, um, to Brigitte and the voice work you've done. I mean, here we've, um, for you, what is the central difference between live action and animation vo- doing vo- voiceover? I mean, it's, uh, I remember at one point, it's different when you see it in animation. Jennifer remembers this also, and she worked in some voice booths. Uh, but um, Greg brought a- an audio recording of an episode to find f- the conventions. There was no animation. And when you hear all the screaming and the grunting, and the, without that animation, music, and sound effects, Sounds a little bit awkward without all that stuff. I remember my first growl. Do you remember that, Greg? It was pretty wimpy, dimpy, dimpy do. And they're like, uh oh, <laughs> you need to work on that because she's fierce. And I didn't have it. I worked on it. And by the time I think I finished the first season, my growl had really, you know, because I used to say sometimes I had very, very heavy episodes. You're, you're, you know, you're prominent in that episode. Sometimes you don't. And I used to joke that sometimes I came in, I grunted and left. I mean, like I wasn't always, always, you know, front and center. Um, I have always been in a booth because when you do live action, you always have to go in and do sound. And it's just one of the things you have to do. It's just part of making a film. And so and you have to lip sync yourself so it that in, innately became probably the training ground that I had for even being in a booth like that was years of having to do that there's just a freedom to to animation it feels like a play, a play reading because you're all at least we were all sort of sitting in a semicircle with our director in the booth and and we are still feeding off each other and there's a lot of movement you know waste up happening in that room so that you can feel because we there's, there's a powerful show you couldn't just sit there and then you know be some powerful warrior you had to put your whole body into it anyway. So I didn't really see a a difference because I didn't have to know where my camera was or where my lighting was, which I'm not good at anyway. So I found it freeing. It felt like theater. You picked up on the energy of everybody around you and they were at such a high level, like you were, you were just working with masters. And I'm not terribly, you know, I didn't go, I went to some drama school and everything, but my, my training was that I got lucky enough to start working and I worked with people way, way better than me and way more experienced. And if you're lucky enough to do that, you rise up. So when Keith David is your dad on day one, (laughs) <laughs> you you got to meet that energy got to meet that energy and it's so powerful you know and she's very soft spoken and she's very this but she's also very tough so i think i had to find my inner strength i wasn't i'm not an action i'm not in a lot of action movies <laughs> i don't kill too many people in movies um so i had to find i had to find that at least back in the day i didn't so i had to find that but i i just pulled from everybody's brilliance around me it's an incredible thing i miss it i miss it because i i hear that that world has changed so much and they and i i haven't been involved in the voiceover world in a while and i really do it's one of the things i miss the most uh it's changed I've heard. pandemic uh sure I mean, of course. They tend even now i mean i haven't 
been in a recording since before the pandemic ended. Yeah. If you assume that it's ended, um, you know, uh, (laughs) but I talk to people who are still doing recordings and, and 90% of the time, or really 98% of the time, they're recording alone in booths, often from their home. Yes. Like a lot of, have their own booths. A lot of voice actors have set up home booths, um, you know, had to during the pandemic. And for reasons that are a mix of safety, I guess, but I, honestly, I think a, a big part of it is just, um, well, we've set this up. We're used to it now. Uh, why would we change back? I know. I want to say um, something. I want to say something about working alone because I had the experience because I'm such a little jet setter, a little movie star, chicky I was back then. I had jobs in New York and I had jobs in Canada. And every once in a while, they had to put me on tape in New York. One time in Canada, but in New York a few times. And I was alone listening on it. Do you remember, Greg, listening on to everyone? I would do my part. Not the same experience at all. I didn't, I didn't no. feel it's not. I didn't like it. It probably wasn't my best performance. You feed off these people. So it's so sad. I hope it all comes back on all levels. Yeah, I do too. I mean, as a producer, you know, it's just, it's not the same. I mean, I think, for example, you know, uh, the whole last half of Young Justice, uh, we worked that way. Everyone was alone. Everybody. Um of season four, the last half of season four of Young Justice. And on the one hand, I think, you know, Jamie Thomason is such a good director. Whoever got to go first sets the tone. And then, you know, we can play those, those takes for whoever's going second or third, you know, kind of thing. And so we can give them a little bit of a sense of it. Um, And I think if I'm being honest, you'd be hard pressed sort of if I pulled the episodes blind and said tell me which one was recorded as a group and which one was recorded where everybody was a home at home in there you know Danica McKellar would record from her kids bunk bed where she put you know bedspreads down uh to dampen outside sand and stuff like that um I think you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference on the one hand but for us doing the process, a lot is lost. And certainly the fun of it, the energy of the room, the thing that makes recording a cartoon fun is those group sessions, you know? Um, and, and I miss that, uh, tremendously, uh, truly do. Um, I, you know, if I get to produce something again, <laughs> which I may or may not, um, <laughs> uh, that's the first thing I want to, you know, put back into the process, yeah. which is like, no, we're going back in, we're getting people together. Um, obviously you want COVID safety and you want all sorts of, um, safety things, but if, you know, if a bunch of people can do it in live action where they're intimate with each other and all sorts of things, with COVID safety protocols, we can certainly be in a room where everyone's in a semicircle, you know, so that no one's breathing right in anyone's face, you know. Um, and I, I think the notion that they're not doing that again 
is actually kind of sad. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would fix that problem. But anyway, um, <laughs> Jennifer, you've uh, been on the other side of the booth during situations like this, your perspective on everything that they're talking about. Well, uh, wasn't, I mean, I, I feel like, Greg, you were like the last man standing on the ensemble in the room anyway, weren't you? Uh, I wouldn't say I was the last man standing, but it, what the thing is, is that if you look at something like a Disney feature, where they're just, I mean, A, they've got relative to a television budget, their voice recording budget seemed infinite compared to ours. You know, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure they had their restrictions. But relatively speaking, it seemed endless. They'd go in and they'd bring an actor in. And so they were all, almost always doing those one people at a time. And they would do hundreds of takes, hundreds on every single line in every single way. And then they'd come back a month later and bring the uh, actor in and do 50 more, you know, um, until yes. they finally found like it. the exact <laughs> right combination and i and to me that would just and you know we couldn't do that financially for starters but even if we could have done it i'd be like i don't want to do that are you it kidding kills, it kills um, yeah um and you know the actors are really good so you know they keep delivering good stuff to them but i'm like why are you doing it this way and that system had begun even in before the pandemic to trickle down through the studios that sort of feature mentality had started to trickle down into um television and i was sitting there even back then going i don't understand this but why? It's way more <laughs> expensive you know you guys are always bitching at us about cost and so why the hell are you doing this? I mean, you're not getting better product out of it and you're not getting, you know, uh, a, a more efficient or cost-effective system. And it, it was mind-boggling to me. Now, one thing I will say is that on my shows, very few exceptions, um, Gargoyles included, obviously, we had gigantic casts. So a lot of these TV series that we're doing this have casts of like four or five regulars. And then, you know, every episode would have one or two guests, but you're talking about six people, seven would be big for them. Whereas my episodes routinely had like, you know, 15 actors, 12 <laughs> actors, 18 actors. Um, and so from the standpoint of, uh, we would spend, we didn't have an ADR budget. You know, what Bridget was talking about going in for her live action movies and lip syncing to her own stuff for sound purposes. Um, we didn't have a budget for that because we had so many actors that we used our ADR budget up front. Mm. And what we would do to, re to make up for that um, is we would do these Walla libraries. Oh yeah. I don't think we had started. To... I remember yeah. that. So we would, we would do grunts and all sorts of different kinds of grunts and we, so that we'd have them right uh, yep. or for gargoyles, you know, growls and stuff like that. 
And of course, the growls in post-production would be enhanced by our sound people with, uh, for Marina and Bridget with sort of cougar uh, roars. <laughs> and for Ooh. Goliath and, and, uh, uh, and Thalog and stuff with uh, uh, lion roars, you know. Um, but still with Keith, Bridget, you know, everyone doing their, their own growls as part of that package. Right. Um, and so we would have a library of that stuff that we could use. Um, but we didn't have ADR money, you know, uh, it would have to be a real special case for us to bring an actor back, certainly in the gargoyles days. Um, I, I think we did it a little bit in the pilot where we did spend extra money, where we got permission to spend extra money. Um, but that was before Bridget was even on the show. I don't think on any episode after the five-part pilot, I don't think we had money for ADR at all because right. our cast was so huge episode mm -hmm. by episode. But it all, yeah. And it all worked out fantastically. Um, in order to keep things moving, I had some notes on, bringing in King Arthur, but I think we'll save those for when we get to Pendragon, which focuses way more on him than this episode does. But again, some a lot of the, uh, we talk about how much action there is in this, but there's these little moments. And, um, you know, we talked, we, we talked about uh, Demona being Angela's biological mother, but really, if I had to say, if someone is Angela's mother, it's Catherine and just, Watching her go, oh, yeah. Ellen Ripley, at the end of that yeah. action uh, of that sequence, she beats Demona, and that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Jen, what did you think of that? <laughs> I, it's a great moment. I mean, uh, and and Demona's playing stupid there anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> I love uh, how, despite being under the Archmage's control, she still throws her gun down and says, "I'm going to kill Elisa first. I don't care." <laughs> it, it, that's there's like one thing she really wants to do: it's kill Elisa, and 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 we've shown throughout the episode that they can get through to him and bring him back. You know, with with the right motivation, <laughs> killing Elisa is definitely on her motivation list. Um, Elisa does surprisingly well, to be honest. I, I was watching that last night and going, really, I, I'm kind of surprised Elisa, you know, survived. Like we've had Elisa Demona fights before, but like when Elisa was a gargoyle, um, you know, magically a gargoyle for an episode, um, or you know, Elisa manages to get in one good kick or one good punch, but here they're like rolling on the ground, and I'm like, Demona's like eight times as strong as Elisa. She should sort of be dead already. Um, but, uh, good thing. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll write off uh, Gabriel. It went faster than it looked for trauma. Gabriel and Guardian jumped really quickly. Yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> right. That, uh, yeah. But it lasts a little bit longer than I thought it was going to, you know, <laughs> or at least yeah. that I remembered. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, the kicker is, is Catherine. But again, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, Demona is, you know, uh, Angela's birth mother. But even if they had been raised as gargoyles back at Wyvern, if there had been no massacre, Demona would have been one of many mothers to Angela. Um, and that's not how Angela was that's raised. That's so Angela was raised human. With one mother. 
you know, Angela was raised with one mother and that mother was Catherine. And, and um, the is, you hear this about mothers, right? That if their kid gets stuck under a car or something, the meekest, skinniest little mom can lift that car. So her strength to me in that fight came from this motherly power that she that she had and this love that she had for her egg for her for her surrogate daughter or however you want to put it like it's almost a superhuman strength came out of her which is what you hear about you know I could probably lift a car or a tree for my puppy <laughs> <laughs> but you know you hear that all the time and so it's very it's very powerful in the show when that happens because you she doesn't look physically like she can do any of this and it's so mighty no, yeah. she's she's done. She's had enough. She's got like her children are in danger and she's putting it into it. And again, the voice performances. I mean, Brigitte, you're great in this, and uh of course, and you're great going forward and Kath Soussi and Jeff Bennett is Kath blows me away when she's playing the weird sisters. <laughs> and Catherine, she's all four. Yeah. Of them. Oh, I uh, yeah. She's cr- it's crazy. It's Which, by the way, meant she got double payment for this episode. Because we get two voices for free. The third voice is like some small amount, like hundred bucks or something extra. Or but something. that fourth one. But if there's a fourth voice, <laughs> that means a full <laughs> other payment. Brigitte, you're about to say something. No, well, I'm just thinking like, Greg, how can we call me for a cartoon in 25 years? <laughs> I'd come back and do it for you. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, why Greg. Not? Uh, Greg. I, you know, I, I need people in Los Angeles. To, uh, you know, I'll be more to Lake Cuomo with the dog. Then uh, I, I, will, I will tell um, you something, gentlemen and lady. I have been in a very David and Goliath uh, fight in the last three years. I was in a lawsuit with the city of Los Angeles because a car. After I renovated a house, a car flew off a hillside because there was no guardrail and the road was crumbling and smashed into my uh, my newly renovated house. And it happened January 6, 2021, the night of the insurrection. Mm. So I fought wow. the good fight. It was almost three years, two years and 10 months, and I won. So everybody's calling me David because I beat the, the city. city of Los but, Angeles. So I went to Lake Como to give myself one week off from a three-year lawsuit, but I am in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'll come and grunt and growl or whatever you need. I'm here, and I miss you. Well, I miss you too, but I need a job before I can hire you. Yeah, yeah, he's. We got to get him. We got to get him yeah. work first. We're all coming off this crazy strike, but it's finally ended. So hopefully, it'll be good for everybody. Thank goodness. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, help. circling back to Angela, I didn't realize it was setting up for her to join the main cast at the time, but I love that she's the one who volunteers to join Goliath and fight in against the Archmage, maybe the biggest threat here. And she saves his life at one point because, well. He was having too much fun. I love that line from the Archmage, the way David Warner delivers that. So much fun. So much fun. And the fact that Goliath is right. I mean, if you really have all this power, why don't you just end this right now? And uh, that's hubris right there. Classical hubris. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It really is. I mean, the Archmage, he's got this fixation on Goliath because 
if you go back to long way to morning, Goliath's the one who sent him off that cliff, right? Um, and yet Goliath is not even the most powerful person to worry about in this. He's a big, strong guy, right? You know, gargoyle. But, you know, there are other characters, not to mention King Arthur, you know, who are a bigger threat. And yet he's fixated on Goliath. And he could have just ended. You know, he covers that lake with ice with one word. That's how much magical power he has. You know, but he doesn't just take Goliath out because he's toying with him or thinks he is. So you've got, on the one hand, this arrogance that's justified because he does, in fact, have this incredible level of power. But he also believes he's somehow omniscient, which is not true, um, and that he can't be defeated because he's that powerful. So you've got this justifiable arrogance set up in contrast with his ridiculous hubris, and, uh, and that's the cause of his defeat. My favorite line maybe in the whole episode is as he's fading away, <laughs> David Warner has this line, all my lovely magic. Um, and, you know, this mournful thing, like I had it all. And, uh, and now I'm just, I love uh, how he says that line too. Me yeah, too. I mean, this is, this is why David Warner was one of the true, true greats because, um, you know, you put that line in the script but it could come off as cheesy or it could come off a hundred different ways. And David finds the one, you know, the one way to read it where you're just like, Oh, that's it. That's perfect. You know? Um, so I, I love that line and I love that moment. Um, but it really is part and parcel of who the archmage is. And it's interesting when he loses the eye and he turns around and you see him with the longer beard and, everything about him has changed. And he's like, you can't stop me. I've still got this. And I've still got, and it's like, no, you're dead already. You just don't know it. Um, it's got you, not but you, you got can it. tell from his demeanor that he's jumped back. Uh, and not just the visual, although that worked very well for once. I think the models, we got them straight, you know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you can tell from the way David is reading those lines that this isn't the guy anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and it's over and he is just pretending that he doesn't know that it, it is. Um, and, but it is, and, uh, it's, uh, kind of this, uh, great, and another sort of gruesome for this character. Magical death. <laughs> Love it. He just yeah, puts although, the skeleton fades. We've had way more gruesome deaths than, than this one. That's yeah. mid-range to me on a gruesome level. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's like you're saying, David read that line well. It's all, I mean, you cast the right person in the role and they can work magic. And we were talking at the beginning about how Angela's Sounds like she would be a difficult character to play. And I'm not just saying this because Bridget is here, but Bridget, you're here and we appreciate, but you really brought that character to life. Just like David brought the 
Archmage life, and Catherine C brought Catherine to life. And uh, speaking of Catherine and the Magus, I think we should circle over to the Magus's last stand and his death scene. And again, this heartbreaking character for me, especially during that action sequence, it's uh, when it's after he binds his sisters and he falls back onto the platform, and you just see his hand. And <laughs> for a moment, I thought he was dead already. Yeah. Yeah. That was just great storyboarding, really. Uh, I, I, you know, took note of who boarded this episode. I can't tell you this many years later, individually, who uh, did that sequence. Uh, might have been Dave Prince. Might have been, um, uh, Jesus, uh, last name's Archibald. I'm blanking out on his first name, which is really embarrassing because. Oh, Patrick, Patrick Archibald. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't remember which of them did that actual scene, but that's not in the script. That's, I mean, not that I went back to check the script, but I can all but guarantee you that's just great boarding. Um, that thing with the hands sort of shaking and then defending and stuff. I think that's, that's our board artists just going the extra mile for us, like they always did. And 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 everything. And Jen, I would like your perspective on this also, and definitely Bridget, your perspective. I mean, I've always said one of the greatest ca- gifts you can give in a character and an actor is a great death scene. I mean, there's plenty of bad death scenes. Bridget, you mentioned that you've had a few, but um, <laughs> not good at them. I don't think I die well. I don't- <laughs> Or cry well. You could never cry pretty. I don't know. Um, go ahead. Well, Angela has a few crying scenes later on in the show, and you did them quite well. But, Jen, what did you think of that entire final sequence with the Magus versus the Weird Sisters? And then it's. First of all, I was wondering, I always wonder whose side is Avalon on? <laughs> like, they're like this, that you're taking the, the magic from our island uh but avalon's like hey you got a nice stick i'll give you whatever you want to get <laughs> um the whole fight scene and I, the using the the suits of armor to make chains was i love that moment um and of course i just cry stupid when at the magus's de- demise especially like when <laughs> then catherine rolls in and all tears and doesn't want him to go. And she's, he's, when he says he's, he would never leave her. I like, Oh, oh. yeah. But now you're laying where the, the sleeping King was. <laughs> When's the Megas coming back? No, it was, uh, yeah, that whole exchange. I want to, I want to say something. Cause uh, Greg talked about the storyboard people and everything. I, we, it's just one of those lucky magical things, don't you agree, Greg? Where this show had masters in every department. Everybody was at the top of their game and believed in this so much because it was so different and so unique and so deep and so so beautiful. I mean, poetic. I mean, no, what the hell? Nobody saw anything like this. It seemed like everybody just up their game on this one. Nobody came in and, and um, you know, just threw it away. Nobody. No. 
Yeah. And I, I'm sure no, I, I think that didn't pay attention behind the scenes back then because it was just a self-obsessed little actress. But <laughs> I know that now what it takes to make these, to produce these things and to write these shows. And it's just like, it's, 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 it's an unbelievable feat what you guys did that it still, you know, has this life. And everybody wants a reboot or a movie or something. I mean, I get I get emails all the time and on Instagram all the time. When is this happening? When is this happening? And I, then I ask Greg, and he doesn't know either. <laughs> I mean, every year somebody says it's happening. And we've had like so many amazing people just here doing this with us too. And there's and it's just the tip of the iceberg of the people that worked on this, uh, and they're all just fantastic. So I said, master animators, storytellers, actors, all around. Sound design, music, music, uh, everything. It was an epic. It was. It, it was just incredible. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Carl Johnson's score, Mark Perlman editing that score because in those days we were using an orchestra that ate up so much of our budget. You know, it wasn't synth. It was an orchestra, and because of that, um, you know, that, we that didn't have the fanfare when King Arthur comes episode. in. Like that kind of moment, like just is amazing. I love it. Right, and I my memory is vague, but my memory is is that uh, Carl came in and did some sequences in this episode. That it, this was a big enough, important enough one for us that Carl did some sequences but you know always a lot of credit to Carl but also to Mark Perlman who would have to take our library of musical cues and make it all work even though it wasn't scored for the individual themes necessarily um the storyboard artist give a lot of credit to this episode was animated by Coco which Coco for us was sort of our uh you know Japan Walt Disney Television Animation Japan was our A team. Coco was kind of our B team, and then everything else was dicey, <laughs> you know. Um, and you can see in this episode, on the one hand, that um, Coco did most of it, but that they subcontracted out to another studio, and so the animation is um, solid, not spectacular, and in one or two places tiny bit painful not horrible we've certainly had worse but a tiny bit painful um and yet the work of everybody else the board artists in particular and and uh, uh dennis and frank's work um jamie thomason our voice director and what he got out of all our cast who you know as always are amazing um you know how about john st ryan coming in out of the blue as king arthur you yeah know? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that a great voice? And that's the one Jamie found. I, you know, um, yeah. we auditioned Angela, uh, but you know, like I, I think I said last time we were on, you know, we didn't usually audition guest actors. Angela was a new. Angela regular, was a so big commi- commitment. Yeah. Yep. Right, but everyone else, Ruben Santiago Hudson plays Angela's brother Gabriel. You know, um, mm-hmm. people have said to me. This is a non sequitur. Well, no, just a tangent, not a non sequitur. But people have said to me, we thought Gabriel and Angela were a couple. And I'm like, I don't know why you thought that. They're always calling themselves brother and sister. Like, 
you know, in the episode, in dialogue, they refer to each other as brother and sister. Um, but anyway, Inter- Ruben internet shipping, what you're going to do? <laughs> yeah, Ruben is fantastic in this episode as Gabriel. And uh, John St. Ryan is amazing as King Arthur. Um, and then you've got, you know, John Reese Davies and, uh, and yes, of course, Jeff Bennett performances the magus is heartbreaking and um garrett graham and kath of course and and then you know sally and keith doing their standard fantastic work and frank welker playing not one but two gargoyle beasts um <laughs> oh one male and one female yep. and that's frank welker you know cross-dressing to play those <laughs> <things>. <laughs> and, uh, that's not allowed in florida anymore right. um <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm just saying. I'm remembering as we talk about it. I'm remembering the these this episode and and being being present for these three ep- and, and just watching these people work and come in and do all these parts. And I remember I was just like I couldn't believe how much talent was in this little sound studio. It was just nuts. Yeah. I need to bring up something. My favorite line. This Greg, you mentioned your favorite line, and forgive me if this sounds a little bit so boxy, but maybe I'm just so so looking at what's been going on in the world as we're recording this but the magus is i cursed your clan and goliath comes back with you saved my children just that realization that reminder that people who are obnoxious and do bad things in the past can change for the better are redeemable i mean and that forgiveness is something that we it's hard to do. It's maybe the most difficult thing. And some people mm-hmm. don't deserve it. No, but some people don't. Some people don't. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that. But, I mean, obviously, you have to put in the work. You have to earn forgiveness. It's just not something you can be handed. But the whole point that it can happen, and especially between, I mean, the Maguses and Princess Catherine and the pilot were pretty damn racist. They were prejudiced. And... You know, I'm just, I'm just looking at what's going on here. And sometimes, and again, in the world, I mean, just, we're, I don't know, the world is darker now than it's been in any other point in my lifetime. But it, it's a nice reminder that maybe tomorrow can be better. Sorry I'm going to put a ball and I, die oh. if I didn't keep that in mind. <laughs> Please let tomorrow yeah, I, be better. <laughs> I hope that's true. Uh but certainly that's a message for the show. This idea of redemption is an important message for the series. This idea that vengeance doesn't help and that redemption is possible. Uh, that's, you know, one of, not the only, but one of the key overall themes of the series as a whole. And you know, uh, we have long talks, I remember, about the Magus's death. Um, whether we should do it, how could we get away with it, you know, in a world where we had standards and practices, again, as always, Adrian Bellow was an ally as opposed to an enemy as our S&P exec, um, which is increasingly rare. I mean, it was rare then too, frankly. Um, You know, it's a subtle thing. It's very, I think, very clear that he died, and yet no one says it out loud. And he says, I just need this, some rest or I need to yeah. sleep. I forget the exact line, but um, which I think was what made it work for Adrian, you know, was that 
Um, well, we just woke up a, a younger, king that was just sleeping there. So, and now, and he's right. in the same spot. So, and he's in the same spot. And so, if a younger audience chooses to believe, okay, he's going to sleep. We get that. He's tired. He fought a big battle. He's tired. Um, and that's fine. In other words, that's not an interpretation that I object to. Um, but for an older audience, I think it's fairly clear. He did. That, um, he's, yeah, he's passed. And, and we felt, as we discussed at the beginning of this discussion, this is a war. And war has casualties also an afternoon cartoon so we're not going to be doing you know the opening sequence of saving private ryan here um but we felt we did have a fight on the beach though we did did (laughs) Um, we felt that it was important to show that um not everyone's gonna make it um so we wanted to make the most of this moment and um, and for Angela, you know, there's this moment before she gets to the hollow hill, there's this moment where the archmaid is just gone, right? And she's looking in the scrying pool and she sees the Magus and she has this, you know, one word and it's heartbreaking. Um, all she says is his name and and you're already primed even before we cut to yeah. the hollow hill and Catherine is there with them because to Angela, she has one mom and she has two dads. One of them is going back. Um, and it's a great, you know, little moment in a series of moments uh, here at the, uh, toward the end that, you know, even last night, 29 years later, has me choking up. I must have, you know, I'm sure I've seen this thing. Not recently, but I'm sure I've seen this thing over the years, you know, 50 times, 100 times, who knows. But um, it got me. Every time. It gets me every time. Same. It, it got me about uh, two hours ago when I did my recent rewatch. <laughs> every time. Every time. <clears throat> it was uh I mean no it, it was fantastic just and then we get the you know those goodbyes on the beach and, well, and there's I, a whole lot of changes happening now. Yes. We've got someone new joining our group uh our, and they're not going back to Manhattan like all this stuff is is new and different now. It's a perfect time for Angela to join them. Um Yes. So I'm pretty sure Angela wanted to go to New York. Start spreading the news. Are we gonna go to New York eventually? (laughs) Oh, we'll talk about that throughout the world tour. We've got about 20 episodes of that coming up. (laughs) I think uh I I think one of the my favorite moments in the entire series is that moment when Elise is like, I can't get wait to get back home. Yeah, you know, and Tom shouts at her, Lisa, I thought you understood. You know, um, well, you didn't send try you to where explain you that go. to her. <laughs> you have to imagine that off camera, there was some discussion <laughs> that he thought she got it. 
<laughs> and then when she said that, he was like, oh, she clearly didn't get it. He didn't um, get it. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I am curious uh, for Greg and Jennifer, and I know it's been a long time, but if you remember what your response to that last line of Tom's was um, when he shouts that. I knew they weren't going to go back to New York. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know where they were going to go. I didn't know what we were in for. Yeah, I had no, I I just knew that New York was not the destination. I I was not, I couldn't imagine the world tour at all at that point. Yeah. Well, we, well, we talked about this Angela joining the cast, Bridget bringing her much needed voice for her, her physical voice, Angela's voice and her perspective to this, show which um despite we talk about the strong female characters for the most part was a sausage fest un- until now with the <laughs> exception of elisa so we're glad you're here but um really just gargoyles has no status quo ever there's no status quo there's a lot of status quo television out there but and greg just recently as of this recording reminded us of that big time in the comic book with issue 10 of here in manhattan so there is no status quo. He's gonna. He's not afraid to blow up the world, and we're about to see this happen here. Everything we know is changing, and Bridget, thank you so much for being a part of it. Uh, thank you so much. I loved being a part of it. I'm so glad you could, you could join always, us. I always panic because I think I don't remember every single detail, but you know, as our great leader starts talking about it it's as if i'm sitting in the room again like it 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 animates in front of me comes right back it's amazing because is that the right math is this 29 years ago (laughs) i I mean in terms of recording it's it's more than that uh because 29 years ago is when we premiered uh so we were recording these well, I take it back. 29 years was when season one premiered. So we were probably recording it right around the time 29 years ago. Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's been that long. Uh, and, yeah, next year is the 30th anniversary. And, and uh, you're celebrating I don't know it. how that's possible. I'm only 29 years old. <laughs> Can I ask you yes. what? What's the um, significance of Minneapolis? Am I missing something? Why that? Why there? There's a really uh, cool convention there that likes us. A, okay. That likes us. Yeah, really. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> they welcome us as fans and they're, they, uh, okay. it's hard to get some of the really huge conventions to pay much attention. Right. Uh, but uh, Convergence is a really nice medium-sized convention. It's not tiny, but it's not, you know, massive Comic-Con huge. Yeah. Uh, right. And so we'll be a big part of that. And it really allows, you know, for, for the community to, to have some space and time to celebrate the anniversary. But there are also other great things going on there. Other guests that have nothing to do with Gargoyles will be there. Um, and, uh, so there are other things for people to enjoy as well. Great. It's July. It's in Minneapolis, not Chicago. Minneapolis, not Chicago. Yeah. And and it's the 4th of July weekend. Yeah. That that was my dumbass moment of the evening, but I think the evening was pretty as well. Thank you for everything, everybody. It was wonderful. wonderful. (laughs) 
a brain fart that I'm not going to live down for a while, but I'm used to those. No, I'm not going to let you forget that for a very long time. Well, I hope you did have a good time, Brigitte, and I do hope you come back and join us again because there's some amazing Angela episodes coming up. There are some amazing Angela episodes I would love to, and I'm honored, and I really, I mean, I really... I have done many, many, many things in my life, but this stands out as one of my all-time favorite experiences. And it's just, it's, it's just stayed with me. And and every time, as I said, when I see Dave, I keep David and say, we just bond on it. Every, it was so important to all of us. We loved it. We knew we were part of something incredibly special. And it was special to us watching at the time, and it stuck with us. We haven't let it go after Clearly all this it time. Stuck so. with us. <laughs> Obviously, it stuck with us. <laughs> I, I posted a meme on my Facebook that's like, respond to this with a GIF of how we met. And it's just Demona GIFs. Like, <laughs> just tons of them. <laughs> and I'm like, I've known these people for 30 years now, and they've become family, and I love it. It's beautiful. I've- you guys met, amazing met, yeah i've met so many amazing people because of this show it's just uh i don't, I don't know what my life would look like today without it it's incredible guys incredible all right um is there any other final points in this episode jen do you have anything i'm good uh, Did i have a question does angela have any gifts out there i'd have to look i hope so i'm gonna go order my my uh <laughs> my action NECA toys, NECA. NECA NECA toys. Okay. Well, Angela. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Do you both have any projects you would like to plug? Go ahead, Greg. You first. This is going well, up next uh, week. This will come as a huge shock to everybody. But I'm plugging Gargoyles comics. Um, we have uh <laughs> At this stage, when is this dropping, Greg? It's dropping in a week from now. Oh, okay. Well, then uh, by now you should have 10 issues of Gargoyles and four issues of Gargoyles Dark Ages. And um, I'm hoping that you will uh, pre-order Gargoyles 11 (laughs) and Dark Ages 5. Um, The story is not over. It continues both in the past and the present, the present, of course, being 1997. Um, and, um, uh, so, you know, we've got a lot of great stories still coming. So buy Gargoyles comics so that we can keep telling Gargoyle stories. My, my, I, you know, my writing career is, a, it's not quite as tame. So I've written a show pre, pre-strike was set up at Amazon called Anticlimactic. And my tagline is, uh, she's lost her youth, her job and her orgasm, but it's not all bad. It's about turning 50 in this business. And then I'm thinking about starting my own podcast. I'm going to oh, call it Lies My Vagina Told Me. And it's just tales of, you know, growing up woman in Hollywood. And I mean, she'd been lying to me for a while. So we're going to get it straight. But um, <laughs> you're excited to be uh, um, in in comic book 11. And I, I want to check that out. So it's all good. It's 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 a it's a just an honor. But I I. Uh, I, I'm literally getting off this podcast and ordering my action. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And, all right. And thank you. And we want to thank our listeners. Thank you for joining us. 
all year, and um, we're taking a little bit of a hiatus, a soft hiatus, sooner than we had anticipated. We need to build a backlog back up. We hope to be back with um, episode commentary in early 2024, but I think we're going to have a couple of things between now and then to keep you entertained, and we're going to keep bringing you first impressions and news, of course, and some other topics coming up, so um, stay tuned. You saved my children. 